Welcome back to the Palace of Glittering Delights, where you never know quite what you'll find. Case in point, today's look at long-forgotten Quinn Martin production, The Invaders. Appearing as if by magic on the Horror Channel schedules, The Invaders was a classic paranoia-infused 60s drama, taking its cues from films such as Invasion of the Body Snatchers and Invaders from Mars, using aliens as metaphors for communism. Arguably, though, The Evaders didn't really involve itself too much with the political ramifications of its central premise. It just wanted to scare people. The series was a rare American import that debuted on UK telly on the ITV region a mere 11 days after its original US screening, but it was a haphazard erring, typical of ITV regionalisation of the time. It only achieved a network screening when the BBC picked it up for a rerun in 1984, which is when I first saw it. My primary memory of The Invaders, though, is when it was screened again by Auntie Beeb as part of Death 2 in the early 90s. Death 2 was one of the BBC's youth television strands, airing on BBC 2 and orchestrated by Janet Street Porter, and was another of those ill-fated attempts by the BBC to prove how street they were. In addition to homegrown programming about backpacking and presenter Antoine Ducan amusing us all with the rap-rap-rapido, Death 2 also screened imported US telly that it thought would appeal to the youth market. Mostly, this consisted of reruns of Book Rogers in the 25th century and Mission Impossible, as well as the Wayne's World sketches and Ren and Stimpy cartoons. But every now and again, they were to a real curiosity, such as The Invaders. Clearly inspired by Quinn Martin's earlier television success, The Fugitive, the pilot for The Invaders, entitled Beachhead, stars Roy Thinnis as architect David Vincent, as if being an architect mattered in any way to the plot. The Invaders was a departure for Martin, who was very much in the Aaron Spelling mould when it came to television production. All of Quinn Martin's leads were stoic and true. Shades of Grey were not in the Martin stable. And by all accounts, Martin was not a man famed for his sense of humour, a trait which also carried over to his shows. But the ABC network knew a hitmaker when they found one, and all of Martin's shows, the aforementioned Fugitive, 12 O'Clock High, and the FBI, plus later productions like Cannon, Barnaby Jones and The Streets of San Francisco, were all ratings hits. Where Martin apparently did score, though, was in his nature and budget. Although his shows all adhered to a rigid formula, if you could nail that formula, Martin, by and large, left you alone to produce the work. Unlike other stalwarts of TV production of the time, Martin was also a stickler for quality, demanding lots of location filming and night shoots should the production demand it. He also paid his people well for that quality, a trait which also served him in good stead with his production people. As you can see from this list of productions, Martin favoured cop shows, easily replicatable fodder that could be mass-produced. The Invaders was a different beast altogether, and many people working on the show felt that it was very much out of Quinn Martin's comfort zone. Many believed that Martin only took the show on because ABC offered to put the show on the air, pilot unseen. The Invaders began the same way every week, plugging its non-monochromatic nature. Next, The Invaders. In colour. And the opening monologue of this pilot episode would be adapted for the regular credit sequence. Uh, 
How does a nightmare begin? For David Vincent, architect, returning home from a business trip, it began at a few minutes past four on a lost Tuesday morning, looking for a shortcut that he never found. with a welcoming sign that gave hope of black coffee. It began with a closed, deserted diner and a man too long without sleep to continue his journey. to come, David Vincent would go back to how it all began many times. Written by Anthony Wilson and directed by Star Trek vet Joseph Sargent, the opener to the pilot evokes memories of the Twilight Zone. Vincent pulls over his car after starting to drift off at the wheel, only to witness a UFO landing in the middle of the desert. The smash cut to the credits is immediately and deliberately jarring, and all credit to the producer for having the premise of the show dealt with within the first few minutes of screen time. Nowadays, we'd have spent at least 30 minutes on Vincent being late because he was cheating on his wife, and what a deadbeat father he was. As we cut to the credits, we very much expect Rod Serling to show up, and this is a very good thing. QM Production. Starring Roy Finnis. With guest stars Diane Baker. J.D. Cannon. James Daly. John Milford. Tonight's episode, Beachhead. Contrary to the cinematic nature of the opener, the credits are very radio drama with no on-screen titles, rather the actors' names are spoken by a very earnest narrator. Following the teaser and credits, Vincent instantly goes straight to the police to tell his story, and they immediately try to convince Vincent he's punchy from a night of late-night driving. Our spider senses are alerted as the cop Vincent reports to is played by J.D. Cannon, noted character actor but remembered primarily by me as Detective Harry Briscoe from Alias Smith & Jones. Highway 166, Dirt Road, Bud... Wait a second. Bud's Diner. Anything else, Mr. Vincent? I know it sounds wild. There was this... There was this light, a a kind of glow. Yes, you told us that. Anything else? Well, no, I got out of there right away. I came here. I see. Show him in. 
Now, look, that ship landed just over an hour ago. It could still be there. Now, if you want me to go, I'll go with you. Oh, I don't think that'll be necessary, Mr. Vincent. David, what happened? Alan, what are you doing here? They woke me up to ask me if I have a partner who sees things. So I... Oh, excuse me. My name is Landers. I'm Mr. Vincent's partner. I thought maybe I could be of some help. Yes, I know who you are, Mr. Landers. I appreciate you coming down, but I think you told us everything we needed to know on the phone. They wanted to know if you were really on a business trip. Then they told me some wild story about your claiming to have seen a spaceship. I'm afraid it's true. I know it shook me up, too. Mr. Vincent, you've driven a long way in the last 20 hours. I'd like to suggest that you leave your car here and Mr. Landers or one of my men will drive you home. I'm not going anywhere until you do something. You're going to need those notes to Mr. find where the ship it's landed. 6 a.m. and we're all a little tired. Come on, stop then. playing games with me. I insist you do something. as Detective Holman reluctantly drives Vincent back to the location and they find a young honeymooning couple who saw nothing and debunk Vincent's story. They seem to be a little nervous but nothing terribly suspicious. This is all played as straight as possible but elements of humour are derived from Cannon who seems to view Vincent as a crackpot who simply didn't have enough sleep. The shooting of the scenes and the music are deliberately pitched to make the audience uneasy and this may be the invaders first misstep. Perhaps had they not established the UFO in the teaser, the audience wouldn't be in on Vincent's side, and we'd be in the same boat as the police. As it is, there is clearly something off about the honeymooners, and Joe Sargent telegraphs this with use of high camera angles and lingering shots on their suspicious faces. Whilst the police are happy with the honeymooners' story and just want to write case closed, Vincent can't let it go, and he returns later to ask them his own questions. The honeymooners prove reluctant to speak, and Vincent gets into a fistfight with the man, who glows red and stumbles away. The couple then attempt to run Vincent over, and he wakes up in a hospital of what he believes to be them. To be fair to Vincent, he has the wrong name on his arm tag, and they are acting a little oddly. Everything about this is played for maximum paranoia, and poor David Vincent isn't really given a chance to be anything other than a crackpot. Even after being led out of hospital, his apartment is set ablaze, ostensibly by an old woman last seen in the hospital with him, and the show really milks the idea of everybody being potentially suspect. What's really interesting about watching this now is how little has changed. The Invaders still plays today in our culture of suspicion and mistrust. It may be an accident that Vincent is all blonde hair and blue eyes, but it sure plays into the show's themes. Vincent decides to try and find the Honeymooners, but lands in a small town, replete with a distrusting sheriff, who decides Vincent is a psycho with very little provocation. Granted, Vincent breaking and entering into a hydroelectric station doesn't exactly endear him to the authorities. Vincent's deduction that the hydroelectric plant must be of some impulse seems rather fast, but doing my research for this episode I was surprised to discover that Beachhead was originally 60 minutes in length. According to ClassicTVHistory.com, this 60-minute version of Beachhead was believed by the producers to be the Invaders' best and most subtle episode, and was screened only once by the Museum of Modern Art in 1969, before finally being released on DVD as part of the first season box set. Perhaps tying into Quinn Martin's quest for quality, The Invaders is a very visual show, eschewing the radio drama narrative of Star Trek and going for a more Mission Impossible vibe. Many scenes in the pilot are dialogueless as Vincent searches for his prey, and this is by necessity. Vincent has no one to talk to, and so a lot of his investigations are of the show-don't-tell variety. Of this type is the hydroelectric scene. 
Vincent's hunch pays off and he finds an alien den on his first go-round. In addition to the aliens doing something weird with electronics, Vincent also sees the chambers that allow the aliens to take human form. Fleeing from his discoveries, Vincent happens upon a general store, which is the most unintentionally hilarious scene in the pilot, and the only one that really dates the show. Inside the general store, a Park Kent figure is latching over two young girls that seem to be primarily there to waggle their bums in front of the camera to some typically generic 60s pop. Vincent has no time for such frivolity. David Vincent never had time for frivolity, and interrupts the dancing go-go girls to use their phone to call his friend and business partner Alan Landers. The paranoia stakes are up as the two girls stop their dancing and watch Vincent as he makes his call. It's a funny scene, playing like a middle-class, cheaper version of the slaughtered lamb moment from an American wolf in London. The general store is on Front Street, a gag that's funny if you're a regular listener of Prentice Magnus Punch's reality. As is the norm for these kind of shows, Vincent makes friends with a pretty young woman who may or may not be an alien. She reveals that the town is being bought up by a group of people who want to turn it into a retirement village. Vincent convinces the woman of his plight and that he isn't a nut job. Sadly, she does turn out to be an alien and informs Vincent that he has no hope. They are unstoppable. And what's so great about humanity anyway? Vincent realises she's also a distraction and Alan has already arrived but he's too late. Alan is lured to the hydroelectric plant by the elderly lady who set Vincent's apartment on fire and he is killed by the aliens. Vincent is then clubbed over the head and arrested by the sheriff who, of course, doesn't believe him or may be an alien himself. J.D. Cannon shows up again in the epilogue and with nothing told Vincent on, he's freed. Well, Vincent, he'd still be alive today if he hadn't wanted to believe your crazy dreams. Sheriff Carver checked out the power station. Except for him, there was nothing. No, there wouldn't be. Not now. The coroner's report was heart attack. Whatever you think, that's the way it was. Sure. Ben, what do you want me to do with him? Let him go. Let him go? That's right. Let him go. I don't know why you came here, Vincent. But don't come back. No reason to. Not anymore. Lieutenant. I know I can find an answer to this if you'll only help me. This is the final word, Vincent. The bottom line. For your own sake, let it end here. Whatever you're planning, let it end here. I wish I could. this first episode, David Vincent is known to law enforcement agencies as a nutball crackpot, and his best friend and business partner is dead. As with all protagonists on this kind of show, Vincent will now devote his life to proving the existence of aliens. The Invaders holds up quite well as an entertaining entry into the paranoia subgenre of science fiction. It's a little slow by today's standards, and the fact that the premise did not change through the 47 episode run means that a lot of episodes run together in the memory. But overall, it's well worth checking out the odd episode should you get the chance. Although, like many shows of the era, binge watching is probably not recommended. The Invaders, though, does deserve props for a number of things. Like Star Trek, it brought allegorical science fiction to television in weekly, easy, digestible chunks, and was hugely influential on future genre TV. 
Whilst The Invaders itself is clearly an amalgam of 50s Reds Under the Bed films and some of the scurrier segments of The Twilight Zone, it proved to be the inspiration for many later entries into the science fiction TV stakes, such as War of the Worlds, V, and The X-Files, all clearly taking inspiration from the adventures of David Vincent. Roy Finnis would crop up in a number of these shows in guest star roles, as well as appearing in the Gun on Ice Planet Zero episode of Battlestar Galactica. Speaking of Thinnis, this brings me to the second thing the Invaders deserves props for, and that is Thinnis' characterisation of David Vincent. Vincent was frequently boorish, unlikable and laser-beam focused on his task, with nothing to really recommend him as a character. He had no life outside of his quest, no visible means of supporting himself, and did, on occasion, perform questionable actions in his desire to locate the truth. In short, he was vastly different to a lot of other bland TV actors of the time, especially in the repetitive wasteland of 60s network television, where stalwart heroes were the order of the day. Some of this is no doubt down to the casting of Roy Thinnis, who, despite being possessed of the typically bland good looks of most TV leading men, oozed a brooding intensity normally associated more with dark, swarthy leads like James Garner or David Boreanaz than Robert Redford clones. Finnis' uncompromising nature added an edge to the invaders. The writing also played a part. The writers tried to get Vincent to be more personable, but the premise of the show just didn't lend itself to comedy endings and humorous hijinks, and many think this is actually what led to the early demise of the show after only two seasons. David Vincent was simply too intense for the television audiences of the time. Whilst I think there's some validity to this claim, I also think that the repetitive nature of the show's script added to the early cancellation. Each episode of The Invaders follows a similar pattern, and it's notable that the most successful of the episodes I've caught, which is by no means all of them, are the ones that emphasise the horror elements of the premise rather than the science fiction. Episodes that highlight Vincent's bloody single-mindedness tend to be more successful as well. Ultimately, The Invaders is a largely forgotten but rewarding slice of genre TV that fails because of when it was produced rather than anything wrong with the concept. There's only so many times David Vincent's evidence can be dismissed as the ravings of a crackpot before viewer incredulity slips in, especially as Vincent had an easy way of proving his story. Simply shoot an alien dead in front of a crowd and let them watch him disintegrate. The Invaders returned in 1995 as a TV miniseries. Scott Bakula took over the lead role, with Thinnis making a five-minute cameo. Neither the cameo nor the miniseries itself satisfied fans or attracted new viewers in sufficient number, and that was the last of the Invaders concept. With no real ending to speak of, maybe David Vincent is still out there, somewhere, trying to convince the world he isn't paranoid, and that they really are out to get you. How does a nightmare end? Not here in the forgotten town of Kinney. Perhaps in Bakersfield. Perhaps it's some undiscovered beachhead in another state or another continent. Perhaps, for David Vincent, it will never end. Doom Patrol. 1963. Doom Patrol debuted. 
My Greatest Adventure, issue 80. 1964. My Greatest Adventure, renamed Doom Patrol. Issue 85. 1968. Doom Patrol, destroyed. Issue 121. 1976. The new Doom Patrol. Showcase 94. 1987. Doom Patrol, Volume 2. Berg Lytle. 1989. Morrison and Case. Issue 19. 1993. Pollack. Issue 64. 2001. Doom Patrol, Volume 3. Arcudi Hewitt. 2004. Doom Patrol, Volume 4. Burn. Shush. 2009. Doom Patrol, Volume 5. Giffen Clark. 2012. 2013? 2014? 2015? 2016? Waiting for Doom, the Doom Patrol podcast. Because we're waiting. Available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Podbean.com. And we're back. Hope you enjoyed that promo for our show. Um, emails. Let's have a look at some emails. Patrick Delmore emailed in. Uh, Walloping Web Snappers. Hi, Andy. Great episode as always. Love the show, Steve. Your enthusiasm for the material really drove the episode. I'm excited that Untold Tales of Spider-Man is on the horizon. On the subject of your empty email bag, can I suggest you open up the shows to feedback by posing questions to the audience? There have been several times that I've listened to the show looking forward to writing an email, but then after listening changed my mind because you'd answered any questions I might have had in show. Hearing the podcast host ask what do you think after stating their opinion on a given subject is a sure motivator, for me at least, to write a response, especially knowing that my response will be read and considered on air by the host. All the best. Patrick, well, that is an exceptionally good idea, Patrick. As a rule, um, the reason I don't do that is generally I think that if I've said something in the show that somebody particularly disagrees with or wants to have their say about, I think they'll they'll just email me anyway. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I certainly welcome everybody's opinion. All right, so today's episode was about the invaders. If anyone remembers the invaders at all, what did you think of it? Am I wrong to think that it's largely formulaic, but nevertheless entertaining? Um, On the subject of Untold Tales of Spider-Man, I very much hope you're enjoying the Spider-Man episodes. There's one left to come, and uh, I must confess, I am prevaricated about the bush, as as Wallace would have it in Wallace and Gromit, about doing the last two. I've written three, I've got two issues left, and I keep putting them off, because I don't want to stop doing it, but I'm going to have to get around to it one day, so... um, those will be coming up real soon, the, the final Lee Ditka. But yeah, I'm, I'm all for hearing what people think. That's what the email section's about. It's about you writing in and agreeing and or disagreeing or pointing out where I make a mistake or a flub or whatever. Anything like that. Sometimes mistakes are simply slip of the tongue. That has to be said. And um, to actually go back and fix them in editing would be more trouble than it's worth, so I don't tend to bother. I just let it stand. Because mistakes are endearing, I think. If everything's too polished and and too you know too professional, something I don't think you really have to worry about with me. Uh, I always I'm always a bit off put by it. I like hearing mistakes. I like hearing people say the wrong thing. I was listening to Michael and I, Michael Bailey and I, talk about Spider-Man Three the other day because I'd completely forgotten anything we said. And the amount of times we say stuff like Superman Three instead of Spider-Man Three, 
is quite amazing. But just leave them. Just let them stand. Most people get what you're talking about. So, okay. So if you want to email in, by, by all means, what do you think? Second email uh, today in the email bag is from the lovely Christopher Franklin, whom it's always lovely to hear from. Palace of Ditko Delights. Hello, Andy. Before I get to the spidey stuff, I did want to say I listened to the return of Starbuck episode and thoroughly enjoyed it. It seems like I saw this episode eons ago because I remember having a weird sense of deja vu when I watched Enemy Mine a few years later. I do recall moaning through some Galactica 19 episodes on sci-fi back in the late 90s, so it's nice to know they managed to end the whole thing with some small amount of dignity and grace. Yeah, it, it was a small amount, though, Chris. I think it has to be said. The return of Starbuck was... It was only a return to form, I think, because the show got cancelled. I think had the show carried on, and as I mentioned in that show, further scripts were developed. I think it's just dumb luck that it got cancelled on a high. Unfortunate for, for those of us that, uh, that like Battlestar, but it, it did at least go out on a moderate high note. Now on to Spidey, continues Chris. Once again, you have definitely described the magic within those early Amazing Spider-Man pages. I nearly spit water all over my monitor. Why are you always trying to make me do that? When you described Harry in his shit brown suit. <laughs> I'd forgotten that I did that. <laughs> that was quite funny for me. Uh, I never really liked Harry, continued Chris. Uh, he always seemed like such a weak-willed character, so easily swayed by those around him. And it's very evident that he started out as such here. What more is there to say about the classic The Final Chapter? You said it all. I do agree. Part of me wishes that this was Ditko's final chapter. Such a great way to go out, but instead we get the Joe story. Oh well, still looking forward to your coverage of those last few issues. Also looking forward to your coverage of Raimi's first film with Mr. Bailey. I thoroughly enjoyed Spidey in Civil War, so it'll be a nice revisit. It will be nice to revisit, sorry I missed a word out there, of his first cinematic outing, which is from Chris Franklin, who hosts Supermates on the Fire and Water podcast network well you've heard that episode now Chris so I hope you enjoyed it I know I did I had a blast with them I always have a blast talking with Michael audio commentaries are weird I don't know if we've let you peep through the podcasting curtain at audio commentaries but you just say stuff that comes into your mind and a lot of times you don't know where it's coming from and a lot of times you're engaged in the conversation you're not actually paying attention to the film and listening back to that before I put it up there was a number of times where I would just go oof because somebody just got hit in the face or, or something like that so there, there, there are ducks audio commentaries. I don't quite know if I've got a handle on them yet. It's, I mean, they're certainly easier to do when you're with somebody else than when you're on your own. I've done an audio commentary on my own, and that's that's quite hard work. Because, um, as you may guess, lovely listener, when you're doing this, you're sat talking to yourself, essentially. Now, given that I'm mocked regularly for talking to myself in the shower and in other places, that's not quite unusual for me. But uh, talking to yourself whilst watching a film is, um, it's a little bit weird. I don't mind telling you. Anyway, uh, last email for tonight is about the Spider-Man commentary episode. Palace 50, spidey act, spidey act, was from Davis Zamora. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Davis. It's been a while since I last wrote to you, and it's nice sending an email to Palace since I haven't done that yet. You and Bailey talking about 2002 Spider-Man is just as good an episode to respond to as any. This is my favourite film of all time, tied with The Amazing Spider-Man. I clearly like the origins. 
Everything from Peter letting the killer go to the confrontation at the warehouse is, to me, the best sequence in superhero movies. There are so many iconic scenes, images that stick with the audience long after the movie's over. Not just the kiss in the rain, but the wrestling match, the reveal of the costume, the swinging scenes, and that final shot of Peter Parker in the graveyard. Spider-Man and Peter Parker are served well by this movie. As an introduction to the mythos and character, the film does great. The writing of Peter Parker is on point, if fumbled somewhat, by Tobey Maguire. The Spidey action is fantastic, even though there's a tiny bit of weightlessness to him that they would address later. And with regards to a comment about Andrew Garfield, I don't see a problem with a good-looking Peter Parker. Look at him as drawn by John Romita Sr., J. Scott Campbell, Terry Dodson, or Olivia Coupiel, for example. But that's a different film series. On a more character-based note, I would still like to see a live-action incarnation where he does let the burglar go out of smugness and not revenge. From time to time, I enjoy seeing a Peter Parker who's not the squeaky-clean, meek nerd that so many people think he is. Don't get me wrong, Peter is a good person overall, but he does have his rough edges. I guess letting the criminal fall to his death fulfills a similar role, however. On that point, I think that's one of the things I've tried to emphasise and cover during the Lee Ditko comics, that Peter Parker was not just a squeaky clean good guy. This is something that was there in his character from the very beginning. Yes, he was a decent person overall and did the right thing often against his better judgment on occasion, but his, his consciousness, his, his sense of responsibility would kick in. But like Davis says, he, he had rough edges. He could be pissy, he could be slightly obnoxious, he could get on people's nerves. He frequently had thoughts of not doing the right thing. Like the, the issue where Doctor Doom kidnaps Flash and he actually has a moment of glee at the idea that Doctor Doom will kill Flash and he'll be out of his hair forever. That's dark stuff for the hero of your strip. But yeah, see that's the thing with me. Tobey Maguire came across as a bit too much, too much of a drip. I think Peter wasn't that once you get past the first few issues of Amazing. And I suppose you could you could handle it if Toby had, had bunched up a bit as they'd carried on, beefed up a bit, or been a bit more assertive as they went along. But they didn't. They kept him as kind of meek and mild-mannered, which Peter wasn't five, six issues into Amazing Spider-Man. Davis continues, Almost everything about the Goblin is well done. As for the costume, I think the basic design could have worked if they'd added a purple hood and cloak, like the Alex Ross concept art. But with the voice, the scene showing the split personality and the equipment, he's such an iconic villain. I don't think there was a badly done villain in the Raimi Spider-Man movies. The ones in three could have been given more time by splitting the movie into two, but they were individually fine. I will take some issue with you constantly comparing the narrative of the movies to the comic books. The movies had a limited amount of time to develop the world, whilst the comics had time to build the characters. However, having character progression of years take place in a single two-hour movie is how you get Spider-Man 3, a film I defend but can't deny is overstuffed. I do understand that your attachment to the source material is about as much as mine is to the movies, since they were the early Spidey influences on each of us. That's actually a good point. Um... See, to me, coming from that, that background of it's the comics that are the sacred text, the movie is too rushed. I, I still think that. I think there's so many things they could do with a Peter Parker in high school that they haven't done yet. Now, it looks like they're, they're rectifying that with this new Tom Holland Spider-Man movie that's coming up soon. And having seen Spider-Man in Civil War, I'm very optimistic about Homecoming. But uh, let's see where it goes. I want to see him in high school for at least three films. At least three films. And it's one of the reasons I think Spider-Man would probably lend itself better to a, a Buffy 
type TV show where they would get to spend five seasons or so in high school. But given that The Flash seems to be taking a lot of Peter Parker elements and putting them on TV, and Spider-Man is still a successful film franchise, although only just, uh, I doubt that we're going to get any kind of Spider-Man television show of that ilk for quite some time. Davis concludes, I've seen the first Spider-Man so many times over the years, one of my fondest memories is watching it on TV with my parents on a lazy Sunday afternoon a few years ago. When it got to the revelation of the killer's identity, my mum said, oh my god, that was the same guy? So clearly it was effective. The film meant a lot to my child self as much as the amazing Spider-Man means to me as a young adult. If you two are planning on doing Spider-Man 2 at some point, I would be very interested to hear commentaries for the amazing Spider-Man films as well. Great show, and thanks for your time, Davis. Samora, well, you're very welcome, Davis. I thank you for emailing in. On that point about your mum, that goes to show the power of Spider-Man's origin. When people don't know that origin, it's a gut punch. It really is. It's a very effective gut punch. And um, it's something I, I think Amazing Spider-Man lacked that Raimi's Spider-Man got absolutely spot on. But that's, you know, different, different strokes for different folks and all that stuff. Alright, that's the mailbag for the Palace of Glittering Delights, now sans mail. So if you've got something to say, email in. What do you think of the invaders? What did you think of our commentary of Spider-Man? Let me know, and uh, I'll read them on the show. As usual, Palace of Glittering Delights is a Two True Freaks presentation. And episodes drop whenever I can be bothered dropping them on the Two True Freaks network. But if you want to support us, remember, there is a, an Amazon link over there that you can click on. And it will buy stuff from Amazon. I mean, well, you'll have to buy the stuff from Amazon. It doesn't do it for you. We're not that rich. But we get a kickback and it lets us carry on producing quality programs like this. He said, tongue pressed, firmly in cheek. Next time, forget all my ducks in a row. It should be the conclusion to Leon Ditko's run on Spider-Man. Thank you for joining me. I'll see you real soon. Bye-bye.